0: It's my birthday, and as a gift to myself, I recorded the following HP Lovecraft classic, which just so happens to include one of my very favorite haunted house tropes, the house built on a burial ground. Every year I like to pick a cool cause to support on my birthday too, so I'm going to enlist your help. For the month of April, I will donate all proceeds from Ghosts in the Burbs merch to Wellesley Books prison book program Check out the merch tab at ghostsintheburbs.com for all the links, and you can find the link on my Instagram page, too. Now, let's get to the story. As with the other classic haunts tales, I found this one at projectgutenberg.com. Here is The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. Introduction A posthumous story of immense power written by a master of weird fiction the tale of a revolting horror in the cellar of an old house in new england from even the greatest of horrors irony is seldom absent sometimes it enters directly into the composition of the events while sometimes it relates only to their fortuitous position among persons and places the latter sort is splendidly exemplified by a case in the ancient city of providence where in the late 40s edgar Allan poe used to sojourn often during his unsuccessful wooing of the gifted poetess Mrs. Whitman. Poe generally stopped at the Mansion House in Benefit Street, the renamed Golden Ball Inn, whose roof has sheltered Washington, Jefferson, and Lafayette. And his favorite walk led northward, along the same street to Mrs. Whitman's home and the neighboring hillside churchyard of St. John's, whose hidden expanse of 18th-century gravestones had for him a peculiar fascination. Howard Phillips Lovecraft died last March, at the height of his career. Though only 46 years of age, he'd built up an international reputation by the artistry and impeccable literary craftsmanship of his weird tales. And he was regarded on both sides of the Atlantic as probably the greatest contemporary master of weird fiction. His ability to create and sustain a mood of brooding dread and unnameable horror is nowhere better shown than in the posthumous tale presented here. The shunned house now the irony is this in this walk so many times repeated the world's greatest master of the terrible and the bizarre was obliged to pass as particular home on the eastern side of the street a dingy antiquated structure perched on the abruptly rising side hill with a great unkempt yard dating from a time when the region was partly open country it does not appear that he ever wrote or spoke of it, No, is there any evidence that he even noticed it. And yet that house, to the two persons in possession of certain information, equals, or outranks in horror, the wildest fantasy of the genius who so often passed it unknowingly, and stands starkly leering as a symbol of all that is unutterably hideous. The house was, or for that matter still is, of a kind to attract the attention of the curious. Originally a farm or semi-farm building, it followed the average New England colonial lines of the middle 18th century. The prosperous peaked-roof sort, with two stories and dormerless attic, and with the Georgian doorway and interior paneling dictated by the progress of taste at that time. It faced south, with one gable end buried to the lower windows and the eastern rising hill, and the other exposed to the foundations towards the street. Its construction, over a century and a half ago, had followed the grading and straightening of the road in in that especial vicinity. For Benefit Street, at first called Back Street, was laid out as a lane winding amongst the graveyards of the first settlers, and straightened only when the removal of the bodies to the north burial ground made it decently possible to cut through the old family plots. At the start, the western wall had laid some 20 feet up a precipitous lawn from the roadway, but a widening of the street at about the time of the Revolution sheared off most of the intervening space, exposing the foundation so that a brick basement wall had to be made, giving the deep cellar a street frontage with a door and one window above the ground, close to the new line of public travel. When the sidewalk was laid out a century ago, the last of the intervening space was removed, And Poe, in his walks, must have seen only a sheer ascent of dull gray brick flush with the sidewalk, and surmounted at a height of ten feet by the antique shingled bulk of the house proper. The farm-like ground extended back very deeply up the hill, almost to Wheaton Street. The space south of the house, abutting on Benefit Street, was of course greatly above the existing sidewalk level, forming a terrace bounded by a high bank wall of damp, Mossy stone, pierced by a steep flight of narrow steps, which led inward between canyon like surfaces to the upper region of mangy lawn, roomy brick walls, and neglected gardens, whose dismantled cement urns, rusted kettles fallen from tripods of knotty sticks, and similar paraphernalia set off the weather beaten front door with its broken fanlight, rotting ionic pilasters, and wormy triangular pediment. What I heard in my youth about the shunned house was merely that people died there in alarmingly great numbers. That, I was told, was why the original owners had moved out some twenty years after building the place. It was plainly unhealthy, perhaps because of the dampness and fungus growths in the cellar, the general sickish smell, the drafts of the hallways, or the quality of the well and pump water. These things were bad enough, and these were all that gained belief among the persons whom I knew. Only the notebooks of my antiquarian uncle, Dr. Elihu Whipple, revealed to me at length the darker, vaguer surmises which formed an undercurrent of folklore among old-time servants and humble folk, surmises which never traveled far and which were largely forgotten when Providence grew to be a metropolis with a shifting modern population. The general fact is that the house was never regarded by the solid part of the community as in any real sense haunted. There were no widespread tales of rattling chains, cold currents of air, extinguished lights or faces at the window. Extremists sometimes said the house was unlucky, but that is as far as even they went. What was really beyond dispute is that a frightful proportion of persons died there, or more accurately, had died there, since after some peculiar happenings over 60 years ago the building had become deserted through the sheer impossibility of renting it. These persons were not all cut off suddenly by any one cause, rather did it seem that their vitality was insidiously sapped, so that each one died the sooner from whatever tendency to weakness he may have naturally had. And those who did not die displayed in varying degree a type of anemia or consumption, and sometimes a decline of the mental faculties, which spoke ill for the salubriousness of the building. Neighboring houses, it must be added, seemed entirely free of the noxious quality. This much I knew before my insistent questioning led my uncle to show me the notes which finally embarked us both on our hideous investigation. In my childhood, the shunned house was vacant, with barren, gnarled, and terrible old trees, Long, queerly pale grass and nightmarishly misshapen weeds in the high terraced yard where birds never lingered. We boys used to overrun the place, and I can still recall my youthful terror not only at the morbid strangeness of this sinister vegetation, but at the eldritch atmosphere and odor of the dilapidated house, whose unlocked front door was often entered in quest of shutters. The small paned windows were largely broken, and a nameless air of desolation hung round the precarious paneling. Shaky interior shutters, peeling wallpaper, falling plaster, rickety staircases, and such fragments of battered furniture as still remained. The dust and cobwebs added their touch of the fearful, and brave indeed was the boy who would voluntarily ascend the ladder to the attic, a vast, raftered length lighted only by small, blinking windows in the gabled ends and filled with a massed wreckage of chests, chairs, and spinning wheels, which infinite years of deposit had shrouded and festooned into monstrous and hellish shapes. But after all, the attic was not the most terrible part of the house. It was the dank, humid cellar which somehow exerted the strongest repulsion on us. Even though it was wholly above ground and on the side street, with only a thin door and a window-pierced brick wall to separate it from the busy sidewalk, We scarcely knew whether to haunt it in spectral fascination or to shun it for the sake of our souls and our sanity. For one thing, the bad odor of the house was strongest there, and for another thing, we did not like the white fungus growths which occasionally sprang up in rainy summer weather from the hard earth floor. Those fungi, grotesquely like the vegetation in the yard outside, were truly horrible in their outlines detestable parodies of toadstools and Indian pipes whose like we had never seen in any other situation. They rotted quickly and at one stage became slightly phosphorescent, so that nocturnal passers-by sometimes spoke of witch fires glowing behind the broken panes of the feet or spreading windows. We never, even in our wildest Halloween moods, visited this cellar by night, but in some of our daytime visits could detect the phosphorescence especially when the day was dark and wet. There was also a subtler thing we often thought we detected, a very strange thing which was, however, merely suggestive at most. I refer to a sort of cloudy whitish pattern on the dirt floor, a vague shifting deposit of mold or nitre which we sometimes thought we could trace amidst the sparse fungus growths near the huge fireplace of the basement kitchen. Once in a while, It struck us that this patch bore an uncanny resemblance to a doubled-up human figure, though generally no such kinship existed, and often there was no whitish deposit whatever. On a certain rainy afternoon, when this illusion seemed phenomenally strong, and when, in addition, I'd fancied I'd glimpse a kind of thin, yellowish, shimmering exhalation rising from the nitrous pattern toward the yawning fireplace, I spoke to my uncle about the matter. He smiled at this odd conceit, but it seemed that his smile was tinged with reminiscence. Later, I heard that a similar notion entered in some of the wild, ancient tales of the common folk, a notion likewise alluding to ghoulish, wolfen shapes taken by smoke from the great chimney, and queer contours assumed by certain of the sinuous tree roots that thrust their way into the cellar through the loose foundation stones. 2. Not till my adult years did my uncle set before me the notes and data which he had collected concerning the shunned house. Dr. Whipple was a sane, conservative physician of the old school and for all his interest in the place was not eager to encourage young thoughts towards the abnormal. His own view, postulating simply a building and location of markedly unsanitary qualities, had nothing to do with abnormality. But he realized that the very picturesqueness which aroused his own interest, would in a boy's fanciful mind take on all matter of gruesome imaginative associations. The doctor was a bachelor, a white-haired, clean-shaven, old-fashioned gentleman, and a local historian of note who had often broken a lance with such controversial guardians of tradition as Sidney S. Ryder and Thomas W. Bicknell. He lived with one manservant in a Georgian homestead, with knocker and iron-railed steps, balanced eerily on the steep ascent of North Court Street beside the ancient brick court and colony house where his grandfather, a cousin of that celebrated privateersman, Captain Whipple, who burnt His Majesty's armed schooner, Gatsby, in 1772, had voted in the legislature on May 4, 1776 for the independence of the Rhode Island colony. Around him, in the damp, low-ceiling library, with the musty white paneling, heavy, carved overmantel, and small-paneled, vine-shaded windows, were the relics and records of his ancient family, among which were many dubious allusions to the shunned house in Benefit Street. That pest spot lies not far distant, for Benefit runs ledge-wise, just above the courthouse along the precipitous hill up which the first settlement climbed. When, in the end, my insistent pestering and maturing years evoked from my uncle the hoarded lore I sought, there lay before me a strange enough chronicle. Long-winded, statistical, and drearily genealogical, as some of the matter was, there ran through it a continuous thread of brooding, tenacious horror, and preternatural malevolence, which impressed me even more than it had impressed the good doctor. Separate events fitted together uncannily and seemingly irrelevant details held mines of hideous possibilities. A new and burning curiosity grew in me, compared to which my boyish curiosity was feeble and and enchoked. The first revelation led to an exhaustive research, and finally to that shuddering quest which proved so disastrous to myself and mine. For at the last, my uncle insisted on joining the search I had commenced, and after a certain night in that house, he did not come away with me. I am lonely without that gentle soul whose long years were filled only with honor, virtue, good taste, benevolence, and learning. I have reared a marble urn to his memory in St. John Churchyard, the place that Poe loved, the hidden grove of giant willows on the hill where tombs and headstones huddle quietly between the hoary bulk of the church and the houses and bank walls of Benefit Street. The history of the house, opening amidst a maze of dates, revealed no trace of the sinister, either about its construction or about the prosperous and honorable family who built it. Yet from the first taint of calamity, soon increased to boding significance was apparent. My uncle's carefully compiled record began with the building of the structure in 1763 and followed the theme with an unusual amount of detail. The Shund house, it seems, was first inhabited by William Harris and his wife, Roby Dexter, and their children, Alcana, born in 1755, Abigail, born in 1757, William Jr., born in 1759, and Ruth, born in 1761. Harris was a substantial merchant and a seaman in the West Indian trade, connected with the firm of Obadiah Brown and his nephews. After Brown's death in 1761, the new firm of Nicholas Brown and Company made him master of the brig Prudence, Providence built of 120 tons, thus enabling him to erect the new homestead he'd desired ever since his marriage. The site he'd chosen, a recently straightened part of the new and fashionable Back Street, which ran along the side of the hill above crowded Cheapside, was all that could be wished and the building did justice to the location. It was the best that moderate means could afford, and Harris hastened to move in before the birth of a fifth child, which the family expected. That child, a boy, came in December, but was stillborn. Nor was any child to be born alive in that house for a century and a half. The next April, sickness occurred among the children, and Abigail and Roof died before the month was over. Dr. Job Ives diagnosed the trouble as some infantile fever, though others declared it was more of a mere wasting away or decline. It seemed in any event to be contagious, for Hannah Bowen, one of the two servants, died of it in the following June. Eli Lydison, the other servant, constantly complained of weakness, and would have returned to his father's farm in Rohoboth, but for some attachment for a mehabital pierce, who was hired to succeed Hannah. He died the next year, a sad year indeed, since it marked the death of William Harris himself, enfeebled as he was by the climate of Martinique, where his occupation had kept him for considerable periods during the preceding decade. The widowed Roby Harris never recovered from the shock of her husband's death, and the passing of her firstborn, Alcana, two years later was the final blow to her reason. In 1768, she fell victim to a mild form of insanity and was thereafter confined to the upper part of the house her elder maiden sister mercy dexter having moved in to take charge of the family mercy was a plain raw-boned woman of great strength but her health visibly declined from the time of her advent she was greatly devoted to her unfortunate sister and had an especial affection for her only surviving nephew william who from a sturdy infant had become sickly spindling lad in this year the servant mehabdil died, and the other servant, Preserved Smith, left without coherent explanation, or at least with only some wild tales and a complaint that he disliked the smell of the place. For a time, Mercy could secure no more help, since the seven deaths and case of madness, all occurring within five years' space, had begun to set in motion the body of Fireside Rumor, which later became so bizarre. Ultimately, however, she obtained new servants from out of town— Anne White, a morose woman from that part of the North Kingstown, now set off as the township of Exeter, and a capable Boston man named Zanus Lowe. It was Anne White who first gave definite shape to the sinister idle talk. Mercy should have known better than to hire anyone from Newsnecht Hill Country, for that remote bit of backwoods was then, as now, a seat of the most uncomfortable superstitions. As lately as 1892, an Exeter community exhumed a dead body and ceremoniously burnt its heart in order to prevent certain alleged visitations injurious to the public health and peace. And one may imagine the point of view of the same section in 1768. Anne's tongue was perniciously active, and within a few months mercy discharged her, filling her place with a faithful and amiable woman from Newport, Maria Robbins, Meanwhile, poor Roby Harris, in her madness, gave voice to dreams and imaginings of the most hideous sort. At times her screams became insupportable, and for long periods she would utter shrieking horrors which necessitated her son's temporary residence with his cousin, Peleg Harris, in Presbyterian Lane near the new college building. The boy would seem to improve after these visits, and had Mercy been as wise as she was well-meaning, she would have let him live permanently with Peleg. Just what Mrs. Harris cried out in her fits of violence, tradition hesitates to say, or rather, presents such extravagant accounts that they nullify themselves through sheer absurdity. Certainly it sounds absurd to hear that a woman educated only in the rudiments of French often shouted for hours in a coarse and idiomatic form of that language, or that the same person, alone and guarded, complained wildly of a staring thing which bit and chewed at her. In 1772, the servant Zenis died, and when Mrs. Harris heard of it, she laughed with a shocking delight utterly foreign to her. The next year, she herself died and was laid to rest in the North Burial Ground beside her husband. Upon the outbreak of trouble with Great Britain in 1775, William Harris, despite his scant 16 years and feeble constitution, managed to enlist in the Army of Observation under General Greene, and from that time on enjoyed a steady rise in health and prestige. In 1780, as a captain in the Rhode Island forces in New Jersey under Colonel Angel, he met and married Phoebe Hetfield of Elizabethtown, whom he brought to Providence upon his honorable discharge in the following year. The young soldier's return was not a thing of unmitigated happiness. The house, it is true, was still in good condition, and the street had been widened and changed in name from Back Street to Benefit Street. But Mercy Dexter's once robust frame had undergone a sad and curious decay, so that she was now a stooped and pathetic figure with hollow voice and disconcerting pallor, qualities shared to a singular degree by the one remaining servant, Maria. In the autumn of seventeen eighty two, Phoebe Harris gave birth to a stillborn daughter, and on the fifteenth of the next May, Mercy Dexter took leave of a useful, austere, and virtuous life. William Harris, at last thoroughly convinced of the radically unhealthful nature of his abode, now took steps towards quitting it and closing it forever. Securing temporary quarters for himself and his wife at the newly opened Golden Ball Inn, he arranged for the building of a new and finer house in Westminster Street, in the growing part of the town across the Great Bridge. There, in 1785, his son Duty was born, and there the family dwelt till the encroachments of commerce drove them back across the river and over the hill to Angel Street, in the newer East Side residence district, where the late Archer Harris built his sumptuous but hideous French roofed mansion in eighteen seventy six. William and Phoebe both succumbed to the yellow fever epidemic in seventeen ninety seven, but Duty was brought up by his cousin Rathborn Harris, Peleg's son. Rathbone was a practical man and rented the Benefit Street house despite William's wish to keep it vacant. He considered it an obligation to his ward to make the most of all the boy's property, nor did he concern himself with the deaths and illnesses which caused so many changes of tenants, or the steadily growing aversion with which the house was generally regarded. It is likely that he felt only vexation when, in 1804, the town council ordered him to fumigate the place with sulfur, tar, and gum camphor on account of the much-discussed deaths of four persons, presumably caused by the then-diminishing fever epidemic. They said the place had a febrile smell. Duty himself thought little of the house, for he grew up to be a privateersman, tearsman and served with distinction on the vigilant under Captain Calhoun in the War of 1812. He returned unharmed, married in 1814, and became a father on the memorable night of September 23rd, 1815, when a great gale drove the waters of the bay over half the town and floated a tall sloop well up Westminster Street so that its masts almost tapped the Harris windows in symbolic affirmation that the new boy, welcome, was a seaman's son. Welcome did not survive his father, but lived to perish gloriously at Fredericksburg in 1862. Neither he nor his son Archer knew of the shunned house as other than a nuisance almost impossible to rent, perhaps on account of the mustiness and sickly odor of the unkempt old age. Indeed, it never was rented. After a series of deaths culminating in 1861, which the excitement of the war tended to throw into obscurity. Carrington Harris, last of the mail line, knew it only as a deserted and somewhat picturesque center of legend until I told him my experience. He'd meant to tear it down and build an apartment house on the site, but after my account decided to let it stand, install plumbing, and rent it. Nor has he yet had any difficulty in obtaining tenants. The horror has gone. 3. It may well be imagined how powerfully I was affected by the annals of the Harrises. In this continuous record, there seemed to me to brood a persistent evil beyond anything in nature as I had known it. An evil clearly connected with the house, and not with the family. This impression was confirmed by my uncle's less systematic array of miscellaneous data. Legends transcribed from servant gossip, cutting from the papers, copies of death certificates by fellow physicians and the like. All of this material I cannot hope to give, for my uncle was a tireless antiquarian and very deeply interested in the shunned house. But I may refer to several dominant points which are noticed by their reoccurrence through many reports from diverse sources. For example, the servant gossip was practically unanimous in attributing to the fungus and malorderous cellar of the house a vast supremacy and evil influence. There had been servants, Anne White especially, who would not use the cellar kitchen, and at least three well-defined legends bore upon the queer, quasi-human, or diabolic outlines assumed by tree roots and patches of mold in that region. These latter narratives interest me profoundly, on account of what I'd seen in my boyhood, but I felt that most of the significance had in each case been largely obscured by additions from the common stock of local ghost lore. Anne White, with her Exeter superstition, had promulgated the most extravagant and at the same time most consistent tale, alleging that there must lie buried beneath the house one of those vampires, the dead who retain their bodily form and live on the blood or breath of the living, whose hideous legions send their praying shapes or spirits abroad by night. To destroy a vampire, one must, the grandmothers say, exhume it and burn its heart, or at least drive a stake through that organ. And Anne's dogged insistence on a search under the cellar had been prominent in bringing about her discharge. Her tales, however, commanded a wide audience, and were the more readily accepted because the house indeed stood on land once used for burial purposes. To me, their interest depended less on this circumstance than on the peculiarly appropriate way in which they dovetailed with certain other things. The complaint of the departing servant, preserved Smith, who had preceded Anne and never heard of her, that something sucked his breath at the night. The death certificates of the fever victims in 1804, issued by Dr. Chad Hopkins, and showing the four deceased persons all unaccountably lacking in blood, and the obscure passages of poor Roby Harris's ravings, where she complained of the sharp teeth of a glassy-eyed, half-visible presence. Free from unwarranted superstition though I am, these things produced in me an odd sensation, which was intensified by a pair of widely separated newspaper cuttings related to the deaths in the shunned house. One from the Providence Gazette and Country Journal of April twelfth, 1815, and the other from the Daily Transcript and Chronicle of October 27, 1845, each of which detailed an appallingly grisly circumstance whose duplication was remarkable. It seemed that in both instances, the dying person, in 1815 a gentle lady named Stafford, and in 1845 a schoolteacher of middle age named Eleazar Durfee, became transfigured in a horrible way glaring glassily and attempting to bite the throat of the attending physician. Even more puzzling, though, was the final case which put an end to the renting of the house, a series of anemia deaths preceded by progressive madnesses wherein the patient would craftily attempt the lives of his relatives by incisions in the neck or wrist. This was in 1860 and 1861, when my uncle had just begun his medical practice, and before leaving for the front, he heard much of it from his elder professional colleagues. The really inexplicable thing was the way in which the victims, ignorant people for the ill-smelling and widely shunned house could now be rented to no others, would babble maledictions in French, a language they could not possibly have studied to any extent. It made one think of poor Roby Harris nearly a century before. And so moved my uncle that he commenced collecting historical data on the house after listening, time subsequent to his return from the war, to the first-hand account of doctors Chase and Whitmarsh. Indeed, I could see that my uncle had thought deeply on the subject, and that he was glad of my own interest, an open-minded and sympathetic interest which enabled him to discuss with me matters at which others would have merely laughed. His fancy had not gone so far as mine, but he felt that the place was rare in its imaginative potentialities and worthy of note as an inspiration in the field of the grotesque and macabre. For my part, I was disposed to take the whole subject with profound seriousness and began at once not only to review the evidence, but to accumulate as much more as I could. I talked with the elderly Archer Harris, then owner of the house, many times before his death in 1916, and obtained from him and his still-surviving maiden sister, Alice, an authentic corroboration of all the family data my uncle had collected. When, however, I asked them what connection with France or its language the house could have, they confessed themselves as frankly baffled and ignorant as I. Archer knew nothing, and all that Miss Harris could say was that an old allusion her grandfather, Judy Harris, had heard of might shed a little light. The old seaman— who had survived his son Welcome's death, in battle two years, had not himself known the legend, but recalled that his earliest nurse, the ancient Maria Robbins, seemed darkly aware of something that might have lent a weird significance to the French raving of Roby Harris, which he had so often heard in the last days of the hapless woman. Maria had been at the Shund House from seventeen sixty nine till the removal of the family in seventeen eighty three, and had seen Mercy Dexter die. Once she hinted to the child duty of a somewhat peculiar circumstance in Mercy's last moments, but he'd soon forgotten all about it, save that it was something peculiar. The granddaughter, moreover, recalled even this much with difficulty. She and her brother were not so much interested in the house, as was Archer's son Carrington, the present owner, with whom I talked after my experience. Having exhausted the Harris family of all the information it could furnish, I turned my attention to early town records and deeds, with a zeal more penetrating than that which my uncle had occasionally shown in the same work. What I wished was a comprehensive history of the site from its very settlement in 1636, or even before, if any Narragansett Indian legend could be unearthed to supply the data. I found at the start that the land had been part of the long strip of home lot granted originally to John Throckmorton, one of the many similar strips beginning at the Town Street beside the river and extending up over the hill to a line roughly corresponding with the modern Horp Street. The Throckmorton lot had later, of course, been much subdivided, and I became very assiduous in tracking that section through which Back or Benefit Street was later run. It had, as rumor indeed said, been the Throckmorton graveyard, but as I examined the records more carefully, I found that the graves had all been transferred at an early date to the North Burial Ground on the Pawtucket West Road. Then suddenly I came, by a rare piece of chance, since it was not in the main body of records and might easily have been missed, upon something which aroused my keenest eagerness, fitting as it did with several of the queerest phases of the affair. It was the record of a lease in 1697 of a small tract of ground to an Etienne roulette and his wife at last the french element had appeared that and another deeper element of horror which the name conjured up from the darkest recesses of my weird and heterogeneous reading and i feverishly studied the plating of the locality as it had been before the cutting through and partial straightening of back street between 1747 and 1758 i found what i'd half expected that there were that where the shunned house now stood the roulettes had laid out their graveyard behind a one-story and attic cottage, and that no record of any transfer of graves existed. The document, indeed, ended in much confusion, and I was forced to ransack both the Rhode Island Historical Society and Shepley Library before I could find a local door which the name of Etienne roulette would unlock. In the end, I did find something. Something of such vague but monstrous import that I set about at once to examine the cellar of the shunned house itself with a new and excited minuteness. This feels like a good place to break. This is a long story, so I broke it up into two parts. The second part, Classic Haunts 3 The Shunned House Part 2 is available right now, so hop on over there or take a real break. As always, head over to GhostsAndTheVerbs.com for all the links. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.